Good morning. My name is Mike, Youth and Young Adults Pastor here. It's great to be back in the pulpit, although I would have chosen a different passage if I had my choice. Um, But I guess part of the joy and the challenge of walking through chunks of Scripture as we seek the whole counsel of God is that we need to wrestle with the hard bits as well as the kind of the easy bits. And I don't get to choose my hobby horses either. And today we do come to a very challenging text. Let me start as if this text wasn't chilling enough with what I think is one of the most chilling accounts of the human condition. Uh, Let me introduce you to this guy. His name is Adolf Eichmann. He's a lieutenant colonel with with an, or was a lieutenant colonel with the Nazi SS, and he was responsible for transporting Jews to the concentration camps. Uh, He fled after World War II uh, into um, Austria and then to Argentina on false papers. But then Mossad caught up with him, the Israeli intelligence, in 1960 and brought him back to Israel for trial. This lady here, uh, Hannah Arendt, she is a German-born Jew studying uh, political theory, sat in on Eichmann's trial and wrote this book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report of the banality of evil. And what she wrote was chilling for this guy Adolf, From interrogation to trial, he bore no responsibility for what happened. Neither did he show any guilt. He said things like this. Now that I look back, and you would expect him to kind of maybe have some remorse, but instead he writes this, or says this, I realize that a life predicated on being obedient and taking orders is a very comfortable life indeed. Living in such a way reduces, um, reduces to a minimum one's need to think, to sum it up. I regret nothing. Oh my goodness. This guy rose through the ranks uh, looking for promotion in his career path. He followed orders and had no sense of remorse for all the immorality happening underneath his watch. In the final pages of Hannah's book, or final words even, she wrote this. It was as though in those last minutes Adolf was summing up the lessons that this long course in human wickedness had taught us, the lesson of the fearsome, word and thought defying banality of evil. How could such wickedness climaxing in this trial be just left with, I was just following orders, sir. I was just doing my job. As I think about this story, there are two things that I am prompted to consider. One, in what ways am I self-justifying? In what ways am I blind to doing things that God is displeased with? Just following my heart, sir. And secondly, there is a banality to the things that we're going to talk about today. Lying, anger, and you might even argue adultery and divorce, which are kind of part and parcel of modern day society. Jesus cast before us today a great vision, a heavenly vision, you might say. But he also peers into our hearts, and it's uncomfortable, because as Jesus brings heaven to earth and joins the two, he exposes the problem, and the problem is in here. Disordered love, self-justification, divergent hearts. This is where we're headed today. Jesus' radical call to obedience, there should be an apostrophe there, reveals the heart of the problem. 
Yet by his radical grace, his will be done on earth as in heaven. Now, if you're new here, and I acknowledge we've probably got a whole spectrum of people here this morning. If you're new to church and you're kind of like, what the heck have I walked into? What I mean by grace is that if you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he pours his grace out to you. He forgives you for every sin, every divergence of your heart, every act of unfaithfulness in the past, in the present, and to come. And he does that to restart your heart, that you might actually enter the kingdom of heaven. Not later, as though acts of goodness might earn your way there, but he starts that now. And he wants us to participate in the very kingdom of heaven on earth. Because at the very, at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. At the center of that is this line, His will be done on earth as in heaven. Now to sum up the whole Sermon on the Mount, I heard this excellent summary. It goes like this. Oh, okay, help. And that's where we're headed today. If you're, if you're struggling with some of the stuff that comes up today, and I have no doubt that it's going to evoke a range of emotions and thoughts, Jesus is here to walk alongside you. And as a part of the pastoral team, we would love to walk alongside you as well. Later on, there's going to be some Q&A. I'm not sure I'm looking forward to that bit, but it's part of walking alongside you, is it not, as we seek the whole counsel of God. So let me start with murder, <laughs> said the preacher. <laughs> you have heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Kind of no-brainer, I reckon. I don't want to be murdered, and I don't want blood on my hands. I think kind of every ethical code in almost every culture in history has something like this built in. It just seems logical. But it's not so simple, is it? And I think Eichmann actually shows us this because he didn't see himself participating in murder. He was just a logistics manager in his mind. But while that could be weighed in judgment in the courts by his external actions, Jesus' judgment goes to the heart of the problem. He sees our heart. And do you see what he says here? I tell you, if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, he will be subject to judgment. We are stuffed. Surely you can't expect us to not get angry. Does anyone here have young kids? If you say rucker, Jesus says, which is Aramaic for empty, you devoid person, or you fool and turn your anger towards a brother or sister... Jesus is saying, you have slain them in your heart. He's very concerned with murder in the flesh, but he is concerned with the beginning of the process and what happens in your heart. For when we turn our anger towards a person, we have written them off, we have condemned them, we have damned them, as though we were better, as though we could judge them. Now, there are lots of things to be angry about, is there not? We could talk about the injustice of Indigenous Australians and what they've suffered, particularly with Reconciliation Day on the calendar. We could talk about what's happening around the world with poverty, with war. There are lots of things to be angry about, and yet there is a line between being angry with righteous intent and being angry with a person. Perhaps angry with an issue and then angry by character assassination. Now behind that anger, as we're told in high school, maybe even primary school, because anger is not a primary emotion, is fear 
sadness, anxiety, jealousy. Now, people have murdered for a lot less than this in the right circumstances, but Jesus nips it in the bud before it grows. Because he wants to cast before us a greater vision. A vision that surpasses the satisfaction we feel about getting angry with people and hide that away in our hearts. The greater vision he casts before us, this kingdom of heaven vision, verse 24, he says, go and be reconciled. Jesus is in the business of reconciliation, of joining heaven and earth. In that little paragraph, verse 23 to 26, Jesus is instructing anyone who feels wrong to take the initiative to stop what you're doing, to cross the room, so to speak, and reconcile with a brother or sister, lest you be angry with them in your heart. Now, we love talking about love, and we love love, but this is messy, radical love. Every week, I seem to have a conversation with someone who is frustrated by someone, but doesn't want to have a conversation about it. Now, it might be possible to simply forgive, to let go, and to think nothing more of it, to not actually approach the person. But in my experience, that frustration left untended becomes the rose-colored glasses, becomes the formation of character that is assassinated, becomes the cause of anger and faction. Now, wherever we are on that spectrum between frustration and faction, Jesus holds out an alternate route to reconcile with that brother or sister, to cross the room. Why don't we do that? Well, we don't want to make a big deal about things, particularly if it's at the frustration end of the level. We could just we could tuck that away. We don't want to get involved. We don't want to get messy. We want to save face. And maybe we think we really have a right to be angry with that person. And we hold on to that. What Jesus is saying when he says to reconcile requires great humility, requires a vulnerability. And every time I struggle to have this conversation, I try and examine the issue, not just the person, knowing that I probably don't have the full picture and neither do they. I'm reminded of how God took the initiative, how he reached out to me while I was lost, while I was distant, while I was his enemy. And the extravagance of that gift in Jesus Christ, his blood shed for me. And then I pick myself up and try and have a difficult conversation for the sake of love to participate in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has called me to. Jesus' radical call to obedience reveals the heart of the problem and yet by his radical grace, his will be done on earth as in heaven. Whatever's been evoked in your heart, I'm just going to pray that in right now. I'm going to pray after every section here because each section is going to evoke different things in different people. Let me pray. Father, you call us to such extravagant love, for you have loved us richly. And yet, in the messiness of this world, our heart diverges, our heart fosters frustration and even anger. Would you help us to let go? Would you help us to trust you? Would you even give us the courage to cross the room and have difficult conversations in order that we might love and not hate? Father, if there are people here this morning struggling with this, would you bring this stuff to the surface 
that they might have the courage to move forward and to act boldly in your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like each one ratchets up a notch. Let's look at adultery. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, okay, that sounds reasonable. I want my marriage to be protected and you want yours. But then Jesus goes that whole extra mile, does he not? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her, his heart. Can you imagine the crowd listening to Jesus at this point? This is not how to win friends and influence people kind of stuff. I reckon this is one of the most challenging verses in Scripture, at least for half of the room here and half of Jesus' audience. But I would say especially in this hyper-sexualized context, and I've preached on this many times before, this is tough stuff. There is stuff in our hearts that we don't want anyone to see. And Jesus is saying, I see that and I care for that. I mean, can Jesus really expect us to, to, to live this out? Like, I mean, this is a great ideal, but really, is it really calling us to this kind of purity of heart? To not look at a woman lustfully? Now, let me just clarify the translation here. The Greek behind lustfully is actually an infinitive, to lust, to look at with intent. There are times when we notice a beautiful person and we're attracted or we'll find that person attractive or maybe even we find ourselves aroused for a moment by that person. That's kind of just part of human nature, if you like. Jesus is concerned with what happens next. Will you look at that person again with the intent to lust for them? And Jesus says, if you do that, you commit adultery with that person in your heart. Now, in case you can't see any kingdom vision here, and it just seems like condemnation, let me ask you this question. In fact, let me ask the women in the congregation this question. Would you like to live in a world where you don't have searching eyes cast over you? Would you like to live in a world that's free from wolf whistles, from raunch culture, from feeling objectified? Men, do you want to live in a world free from crippling temptation, and being saturated in a tragically empty, pornified culture. Heck yes. I want that world. Jesus wants that world. He's casting a vision for this world. And yet we are stuck with the brokenness of this world in the present. And Jesus is mashing the two. And it hurts that he would call us into such alignment. Some mental health professionals are calling pornography, if we can just zoom in on that issue for a moment, a public health crisis. Just this year, several states in the US have passed resolutions against pornography, raising public awareness, recognizing the dangers. We don't have time to zoom into all of that, but this is the product, the fruit of lustful hearts. Let me just pick on this guy for a moment, Utah Governor Gary Herbert, who said recently this year, pornography thrives in secrecy. Sometimes people suffer in silence. We'll start with open, candid discussion about these dangers and bring it to light to protect our society and particularly our young people. He's casting a vision for a better way. But I feel like Jesus has done that 2,000 years ago. And we're slow to catch up, perhaps, as our society kind of is rampant. I can't help but think, but the bus shelter advertisements would be considered pornography for our 830 viewers, 830 congregation members. There is a lot of stuff happening 
in our world. But Jesus is not here ranting against culture. He's saying, I want your heart. I want you to align your heart with the kingdom that I show you. So even if we can maybe say, yes, I want that world, how on earth do we get there? Well, look at what he says. He says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Unfortunately, you can find on the internet there are examples of people taking Jesus literally here. It didn't go well. Jesus is not saying gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Sometimes he's sophisticated enough to use metaphor. What Jesus is saying here, I think, sums up what Job said in the Old Testament. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Job found resolve to guard his eyes to guard his heart, lest his heart be filled with lustful thoughts that he observes. Jesus is asking us to be resolved, to take action, to not allow ourselves to be just drifting along with the tides of whatever's happening in the current time. He's saying, with the vision I cast before you, be resolved to purify your heart and keep yourself pure. If I could be so bold, there are two areas in my life that I take resolve, and they are the beach and the internet, I love them both. And yet I have to be resolved to enjoy those two things with Jesus' kingdom vision before me. When I go to the beach, I have to make a resolution not to stare. Jesus here is not ranting against what women should or should not wear, he's ranting against my heart, that I might be resolved for him. When I enjoy looking on the internet, uh, whatever meme videos or wherever I find myself, I have been resolved to actually run filters on my internet account. I have worked out to meet up with accountability partners so that if there's anything that's suspicious that I look at on the net, that filter emails a friend to say, actually, Mike's looked at this, you know, is that worth talking about? And I've asked my accountability friends to do this, isn't that, my mum hasn't done this for me. I want to be resolved in my heart. I want to have a conversation. I want to let Jesus into every crevice of my heart that he would be Lord over my whole life. I wonder if there's time for you today to consider what resolve you might take, whether it be not watching Game of Thrones or whether it be whatever it is in your life where you find yourself tempted, how might you take resolve to enjoy the good things of this world, but most of all to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and his kingdom? I have no doubt there are people, if we could just go by the statistics here, there will be many people here who are struggling with pornography. And you're probably thinking you're the only one and you're probably thinking you're not worthy to come to church or worthy before God. I meant what I said when I described grace, that Jesus forgives every sin, past, present and future. You are still a child of God. Jesus is calling you to a better vision. If you are struggling in this area of temptation, of pornography, Stu will come up a little bit later to talk about some avenues here, but I don't want you to leave this day without talking to someone about that. Now, my hope for you is that everyone here has someone that they walk alongside with who they can trust enough to actually say, oh, this is an area of struggle here. If you don't have that, that'd be a good thing to find. But the pastoral team is here to walk alongside you as Jesus walks alongside you, to restart your heart, to cast a better vision and that you might walk in all the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven despite your struggles. Let me pray. 
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his words that we can trust. Father, would we trust his words more than we trust our own heart's desire for satisfaction? For people here who are struggling, Father, would you bless them? Would you remind them of your presence and your love that conquers all? And would you give them the courage to take up the tough fight against whatever temptation they struggle with? And would you help us to be a church that demonstrates your love, to walk alongside people, to disciple them, that we all might know Jesus more and more and his vision and call and obedience for our life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, divorce. In this sermon of tough topics, I think this was probably the hardest one for me, and I say that because I know there are people in this church who are divorced, are remarried. I am married, coming up to 15 years, my parents are still married, my wife's parents are still married, and so how dare I speak on this topic knowing that this is a very difficult and touchy topic. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try and speak to what Jesus does say, and there's going to be a thousand questions that some of you might have. The place for answering those questions will be personally with the pastoral team, uh, and I'll probably even avoid answering personal questions over Q&A. But Jesus seems to be pretty clear. He is for marriage. He really is. And yet, even in the simplicity of his for marriage, he opens up the complexity, acknowledging the brokenness of this world and that marriages can be broken. I think everyone agrees that divorce is a bad thing. And yet, there are terrible things that happen. And Jesus opens up an exception. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this kind of heard it said language, Jesus is picking up on kind of what people are talking about. What are the norms, the cultural norms, the religious norms? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 24 particularly, but in other places, God speaks of divorce, uh, talking about even a certificate of divorce. And that's what Um, people are picking up on. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 19, I think I have it on the slide here, nope, I don't, Jesus, um, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Picking up on some of the Old Testament language and then kind of acknowledging the laws that were kind of built around that. Now, I want to look at particularly what's happening here and how those norms had found their way in before Jesus and how Jesus speaks to those. We're going to look just briefly at the Mishnah. John's brought this up before. The Mishnah is kind of like all the Jewish oral traditions written down in a book. So it's like a commentary on the Old Testament. And they're acknowledged with authority amongst the Jewish people. From the um, book called Gitten, uh, which I think is Hebrew for divorce, there's a whole section on rules around divorce. And this is what the author says. The house of Shammai say... A man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity. Since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So there's that in anything language. What did did Moses mean? What did God mean at that point? Well, this is how it was interpreted. The house of Hillel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Ah, Aquibah says, 
even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she find no favour in his eyes. So there it is, written in Jewish oral tradition, that if a wife spoils the dish, that's grounds for divorce. If a man finds a prettier woman, that's ground for divorce, to pursue the prettier woman. I've said it before in the sermon, but what the heck? This is the problem with law. Because with law, it gets weird. We love loopholes, we love pushing the boundaries. And Jesus is saying, when he said, you have heard it said, and he's correcting the vision, going to the heart of what the law was trying to say and addressing the heart of the problem in here. Here's Matthew 19. This is Jesus' further response, further on in the gospel. Haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning of the create, the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus really is for marriage. He is saying those petty reasons do not come up against the covenant promises made when two people come together and promise through thick and thin that they will practice the love of God in their marriage. And yet, Jesus still holds out an exception. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. As you read through what Jesus has to say, as you read through what Paul has to say in the New Testament, particularly 1 Corinthians, there seems to me two exceptions that can actually break a marriage, break the covenant bond between two people, and that is adultery by abandoning the one flesh relationship in marriage in favour for another sexual union, or two, abandonment of that covenant through actively working against the promises that's been made, whether that includes violence, desertion, Now, when we kind of start drilling down into this stuff, it does evoke a bunch of questions. But let me just rise above those questions for a moment to take us back to God. Because God found himself in the same position. In the Old Testament, he made a covenant promise to his people. In fact, it's likened to marriage many times. The prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, this is what he writes. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Hosea's marriage is this prophetic drama, acting out the relationship between God and Israel. And God is saying to Hosea, sure, if, I guess technically there might be grounds for divorce, but love her still. Love her extravagantly like I have loved Israel and remained faithful beyond my rights. Now, whatever questions you have, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, know that God love is, God's love is greater than ours. What has happened in your past, whatever's down the barrel that you're looking through at the moment, God's love is greater. Let us keep holding on to Him as He renews the covenant in Jesus, as His blood is shed for us. Now, as I think just pastorally about kind of how we help each other in our marriages. I think Apostle Paul writes it best when he says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you from this. Marriage is difficult. Perhaps if we acknowledge our brokenness and the difficulty of marriage, yes, there's plenty of joys as well. 
we might actually be more real with each other, with ourselves, with our close friends, with those who disciple us, that we might avoid the end of the spectrum, which is, should I get divorced? And we might have the strength to practice courageously the love of God in our marriages. We need to abandon the caricatures of so-and-so are the perfect couple and acknowledge that in every marriage there is struggle and we should pray for our marriages in this church, pray for our own marriages and pray for those who want to get married and are not married. Pray that all of us might keep looking to Jesus and live out the vision He has for the Kingdom of Heaven on earth. Let me pray. Father, I lift up the marriages of those in St. Andrews, asking that You would bless them and strengthen them. I pray for those who are here and who are part of our community who are divorced and remarried, would You strengthen them as well? Would You give them grace? Would You help them to keep moving forward with the love of Christ? We ask this knowing that we are broken, we have divergent hearts, and yet you love us all the same. We say thank you. Amen.